I am thankful, delighted, and excited to continue our study in 1 John. If you are able, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. I'm always taken aback by the providence of the Lord. Reading Psalm 29 this morning where we're ascribing to the Lord glory and strength um, is always right, and we ought to do that. But providentially, as we consider what the Lord would have us hear out of First John chapter 3, I think that we are going to see the glory of the Lord everywhere. We're going to be looking this morning at First John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. The general objective of this message is to see that God's love is active. It's at work, and it's on display in the lives of his adopted children. In other words, the transforming love of God, which presently is on display, will not only continue in the lives of his children but will culminate into a glorious demonstration of mercy, power, and wonder. Simply put, God's love for his people is a transforming love. If you're keeping notes, this will be under four heads and the familiar chiastic structure that John likes to use. Point number one is going to be the present love of God. Point number two will be the future love of God. And then the chiastic structure will be seen here. Point number three is the future transformation. And point number four is the present transformation. So present love, future love. Future transformation, present transformation. So now that you're in John chapter 3, and on your fingers on verse number 2, read with me. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us this morning in your temple to read your word and to consider the glory and the honor and the majesty that are ascribed to your name and the wonder that you would include us in your plan of redemption. Father, bless our time now. Help us by your spirit to see wondrous things in your law. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Well, if you recall our time in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, we remember that Nebuchadnezzar, at the height of his glory, was strutting around on the temple roof, his temple roof, in pride. 
And in chapter 4, verse 28, we remember it said this. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall be passed over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. This is the transformation that took place upon Nebuchadnezzar as he uttered the words, This is the glory of my majesty. You see, brothers and sisters, why the psalm we read this morning is so providential is because it is to the Lord alone that we ascribe glory and majesty. And when Nebuchadnezzar took this upon himself, he was transformed into a beast. Now, thankfully, the story didn't end there for Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure he's thankful as well. But what I want us to see this morning is that there is a transformation that awaits all the people of God. And it is wrapped up in the present love that God has for us, the future love that he will show us, this future transformation that will take place is actually being fueled by the grace and the power and the mercy and the love of God that actually is working to transform us now. That's the fourth point. Before we get there, let us work our way through. Verse 2a reads this. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now, as you recall from our previous sermon, John has already said something like this. We notice that it's actually a textual variant where John, in the beginning of chapter 3, says that, Beloved, we are God's children now. And we said, there's no reason to worry about this textual variant because it shows up later in John's thought. And here it is. Beloved, we are God's children now. We discussed last time how John is actually pouring forth a doxological praise when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And at the end where he says, and so we are is the point we're looking at today. That we are God's children now. We talked in our previous message about how 
this adoption that God is pleased to do in our lives is not only a mercy, but it's an act of wonder and power. We recalled in Romans 4, 17, where it says that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We were not children of God, remember? Before we were called, before we were saved, before we were justified. We noticed that we were rather called children of wrath. I was very encouraged to have conversations uh, with some of you brothers and sisters about the sermon last time in 1 John and about the wonder that God does in adopting us that he would adopt sinners like us not neutral but haters of God that he would transform us remember Paul says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons and we cry Abba, Father that tender address to our Heavenly Father. No, very much unlike the contemporary readers or hearers of this letter of John, God of the Old Testament was not an evil, angry God. Yes, we know He's angry at sin every day, but He is the same God that we now, as His children, cry, Abba, Father. An affront to the false teachings of John's day. But it is good for us to consider how we got to be God's children, the path that the Lord chose for us to go on, the means that he used, primarily his word, by the work of his spirit, by a demonstration of his grace. You may have heard the Romans road. The Romans road is a road we've all been on, whether we know it or not if we're children of God. The Romans road goes something like this. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we were. That's where we are. But then the next stop on the Romans road is Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What sweet truth that is to a child who is being drawn now by a heavenly father. That is the aroma of death to those who are not called by the father. To those who are not being drawn to the son by him. And then Romans 5.8 is the third stop on the Romans road. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, and I'll add haters of God, Christ died for us. And so, the next stop is Romans 10.13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, what must I do to be saved? Call upon His name. Believe that He has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Romans 10, 9 through 10, the last stop on the Romans road declares that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth 
that you profess your faith and are saved. I know that it was a joy to all of you who are in Christ that witnessed the baptisms last Lord's Day. Those baptisms, as we were discussing in the congregation last week, were a sign, a symbol, pointing to a reality that those who were dunked in those waters, who were immersed in those waters, have walked this Roman's road like you if you're in Christ. And if you are in Christ and have walked this Roman's road, I trust that you have been immersed in those waters. Those waters that symbolize our sins being taken away, washed away. But not only that, that we are in union now with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Everyone who rightly enters those waters of baptism has walked this Roman's road and has declared with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them that God raised him from the dead and are saved. And so when John says beloved at the beginning of this verse like he has so many times in this epistle he is showing his love to those who are under his spiritual care. And yet these are the beloved that are under God's spiritual care. John loves them because they are God's. And because they are God's, they are John's brothers and sisters. And he wants them to know that it's not that they will be children of God one day, but that they are children of God now. Is this you? Are you a child of God? Have you walked this Romans road? As we continue in the, these few verses, we're going to see the many conclu wrong conclusions that people come to. Well, if I'm a child of God, then this. If I'm a child, if I'm going to be a child of God, I have to do that. Remember Romans 4.17, that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's not about earning the right to be called a child of God. It's not about striving and earning the right to call God your Father. This is something that God does first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then all of these things, even the stops on the Roman road, are all by His design. You are on that road because God put you there. And Romans 10, 9 through 10, that declaration that pours forth from your mouth, that belief that is in your heart, is His work. And we rejoice. We rejoice. And so we did last week in witnessing those baptisms. But John goes on. He's talking about the present love that we have by God now. The adoption that we have now. And yet, he then looks to the future. 
So the present love now moves to the future love. And what is this future love? Well, John begins to grapple with the glory of what awaits us by saying something I think that is very honest. He says in verse 2b, And what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared. John recognizes that there is something still in store for these who are adopted by God as his children. That there is a timetable, there is a movement that is pointing forward. We've noticed so many times, especially in Daniel, that history is not cyclical, just repeating aimlessly over and over and over again. But rather, history is linear. There's a beginning and there's an end. And there is a movement that is going somewhere. The deep theological word is that there is a telos to all of creation. There's a goal. There's a point. There's direction. There's a design. And we know this. And this is what John is saying. That even though you are adopted now and are justified now and have access to boldly enter the throne room of heaven now, make your requests known to God now, can call upon God as Abba Father now, yet there is something that remains. There is something that yet remains for you personally if you are in Christ. And this was known not just in the New Covenant, but this was known in the Old Covenant. Remember Job? Job said in Job 19.26, Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. There are some who say that there is no doctrine of the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament for believers. There's nothing. No. Job clearly says, even after my skin has been destroyed, in other words, my body, my physical body is dead. Yet in my flesh, not in my spirit, in my flesh I will see God. Now, I don't know everything behind Job's thinking in writing that verse. But there is a lot wrapped up in not only the declaration that in his flesh he will see God, but that he will see God, <laughs> and this has something to do with that state of his being. And this is what John is going to be unpacking for us, at least in part. It was, what, what, is, what is true now of us is also true of Job then, though, as well. Where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Again, this face to face there should be some alarm bells going off. Things that start to crop up in our thinking from reading our Old Testaments. 
Job says that he will be raised in his flesh and will see God. Paul now in 1 Corinthians is saying that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been known. This is a weight of future love that is beyond our understanding. It's beyond our understanding. But we have a picture of it in the resurrection of Christ. We have a picture of it in the resurrection of Christ. And we will continue to unpack that as we go on. But one point I want to leave, or one thought I want to leave you with before we leave this point too is brothers and sisters, do you think this way? Do you think this way about your own Christian life? About your own existence? About what awaits you as adopted children of God? It is so easy for us to be consumed by our trials. Remember, we discussed in previous lessons that if you suffer for Christ, that this is a sign that you belong to Him. That there is actually confidence that we can have that we are in Christ if we suffer for Him. And that suffering in this present age is not foreign, but is to be expected. And as the Apostle Paul said, this is the way into the kingdom. Our suffering is the way into the kingdom. It's that road that we all walk. But there is this idea of seeing God there's this truth of being transformed there's this glory from the Father that is given to us by the Son through the Spirit and this is where John wants us to go next he wants to say we don't know what we will be. It has not yet appeared. We don't know. In other words, Paul's right. We see in a mirror dimly. We see in a mirror dimly. But then point number three, John wants to show us a little something about this future transformation. When he says, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And here again we have the Apostle John who's connecting this future transformation with seeing God. This future transformation is linked with seeing God. It was for Job, it was in Paul, and now here it is in John. And the Apostle had an audience that were made up of Jew and Gentile in the first century. And certainly those who were Gentiles were then being taught out of the scriptures, the Old Testament. That was the Bible of the early church. But certainly his Old Testament hearers would have been very familiar with an idea of a physical transformation through close communion with God. I want to spend just a little bit of time going back as we have before in 1 John 
to the book of Exodus. So if you're able, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Here we are with the give, at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. This particular event would have been etched in the hearts and the minds of every Jewish child, man, and woman, almost from birth. And in Exodus 33.12, we hear Moses wanting to see the glory of the Lord. And so if you're in Exodus 33, find verse 12. And let's start making some connections. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. And you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Then the Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Where have you heard those words in the New Testament before? I will give you rest. Come to me. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here we hear the Lord saying to Moses that he will give him rest, and his presence will go with him. Then Moses said to him, verse 15, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. That covenant love. I know you by name. Remember Mary at the tomb? Mary. God knows you by name, brothers and sisters through his covenant love. But we go on, verse 18, Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Here it is. This is all about glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. The Lord, in your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot Listen, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord made a provision. He said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. 
every Jewish Christian, especially, would have understood the weightiness of seeing God because of what is said here in Exodus 33. If I see God, I die. But God made a provision for Moses. He hid him, hid him in a cleft of rock and covered him. Now, there is an application we can make now with us being in Christ, being covered by him. Indeed, Christ is our rock. But when Moses came down from the mountain, as we fast forward in Exodus 34, with the two tables of the law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Moses didn't know, but there was a transformation that took place. By seeing the Lord, even in an accommodated way, there was a transformation that took place. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, and that his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him, Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. And then afterwards, all the Israelites came near to him, and he gave them all the commands of the Lord that were given to him on Mount Sinai. Now listen, his face is shining. He's speaking to them. And then it says this in verse 33 of Exodus 34. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. He put a veil over his face. It was often, it's often the thought that he puts the veil over his face because the people are afraid, that they're frightened that they're now in the presence of Moses who has been transformed by being in such close fellowship and communion and in fact seeing in an accommodated way the Lord. We're going to come back to that and to see if that's why Moses put the veil on his face to accommodate the people who were afraid. But, making a beeline from this book in Exodus to the New Testament, we find ourselves on another mountaintop. Except this time it's Jesus. John himself experienced an even greater revelation of the glory of God than Moses saw. A manifestation and a physical transformation of the glory of God. The Apostle Matthew records for us in Matthew 17, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared, guess who? Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about his exodus. Now granted, 
we could spend a whole another sermon talking about this verse. But what I want you to see is that we have demonstrations in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, of the glory of the Lord being on display. And in the case with Moses, we see a transformation that takes place. A physical transformation that takes place. John has already prepped us in chapter 2 for this idea of the second coming of Christ when he said and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming but again these ideas are not just limited to the New Testament Psalm 15 15 says as for me I will behold your face in righteousness and listen when I awake I will be satisfied in your presence. Here again, this language of awake, being awakened, is resurrection language. And when the resurrection takes takes place, those who are in Christ, those who are righteous in Him, behold His face. Matthew records the words of our Lord when He says, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. There is something monumental that takes place in the lives of God's people when they see God. John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer. We've gone so many times to John 17 because a lot of what John is saying in 1 John is coming from dialogues that he had or heard with his time with Jesus that are recorded in his gospel. Listen to what Jesus says, or I'll remind you what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, that they may see the glory you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Even in John 17, We have this idea of love being wrapped up in glory. That's what we have here in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. The present and future love that God has for His children and the future transformation that awaits us whom God has placed His love upon. But it isn't just us that await this coming, this transformation this end point on the historical timeline remember what Paul says in Romans 8 19 the creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God what a shame it would be brothers and sisters if all of creation is waiting in eager expectation for this revelation of the sons of God and you as a child of God aren't now I know the spirit is active and working in you and you are again not by your doing not as if you need to leave here this day and say oh I need to really start getting excited about this future that awaits the sons of God no I trust you already are because the spirit is at work in your hearts Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, same language John is using, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians 3.18, if you're able. 2 Corinthians 3.18, because I want to answer that question. Why did Moses put that veil on his face when he was transformed by seeing an accommodated view of the glory of the Lord? We may be familiar with what he says at the end of this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, and we know this verse, and we verse 18, who with unveiled faces, we, brothers and sisters, we, in Christ, adopted children, sons of God, sons and daughters of God, we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image, with intensifying glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. We know that. But this was the reasoning that we may not, again, be familiar with. Starting in verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? What's Paul saying? He's saying that the Old Testament could not save. He's saying that the Old Testament could not afford you the opportunity or the ability to see the glory of the Lord in an unaccommodated way. And do you hear what he says at the end? of verse 7 he put a veil over his face because of its glory which was being brought to an end it was a fading glory the the shining on Moses' face didn't last it would recede it would die out and Moses did not want the Israelites to see that Moses did not want to see that this glory was an accommodated glory that was given to Moses. Verse 11, For if it was being brought to an end, and it came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. In other words, in the Old Testament, there are types and shadows that point to Christ and there was a way of salvation that was there through, through typology. But the substance of the covenant was not gracious. And that's why it was passing away. But the new covenant never passes away. It has a greater glory. 
And so Paul is doing a Jewish, I mean, a, a very Jewish argument when he says something from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser had glory, if the Mosaic covenant had glory, how much more will the new covenant have glory? Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when, we, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Interesting. When we talk to our Jewish brothers and sisters who are outside of Christ, they still see the Old Covenant through a veil. They don't realize that the glory has left and that the glory now resides in the new covenant in Christ. But as Paul will go on to argue in 2 Corinthians, when they're brought into Christ, that veil is taken away. And they see the radiance of the face of Jesus, the Messiah. Again, such weighty, weighty topics. But this is the point. When we arise from the grave at his coming, or we remain when he comes back, not only will, we, will those who remain be changed in the twinkling of an eye into this, what's it called? Glorified body. But those who are resurrected will be changed into a glorified body. Oh, how we wait that day. And John is saying, I don't know what that is going to look like. I don't know the extent of what this means. But I do know one thing. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This future transformation is an amazing, weighty reality that awaits us all. And it's a merciful thing that awaits us all. But, in case you're thinking that all this is in the future, that God is going to wait until the return of the king to transform us, don't stop reading. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the present transformation, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is doing with us today. It is imperative that we understand the law-gospel distinction. Because many read verses like this, and we've talked about 1 John being misused by false teachers. Many look at verses like this and they want to put a yoke of slavery on you. See, it doesn't say that God purifies you, they'll say. It says that you purify yourself. And they run with that and they say, you need to earn your salvation. And you know how you do that? Well, let me give you a list of ways. We know the ways the false teachers give. But we 
understand a law gospel distinction. We understand the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is that one-time forensic act where God declares you innocent, righteous in his courtroom of heaven because he has given you something which is outside of you, namely the righteousness of Christ applied to you. And so those who rightly understand that understand that we are not earning a standing before the Lord. They understand the law-gospel distinction. But some have erred even with that, saying, therefore, the law has no use. I'm not under law, but under grace. They'll twist scripture in that way. But as we have discussed time and time again, that there is a use for the law. In fact, there's three of them. But the one that I want to talk about today is that it is a means that we can glorify God. One of the catechism questions that I pray will be in the hands of everybody shortly is how can you glorify God? And the answer that is given is by loving him and doing what he commands. I pray that all your children in unison will answer that if it's ever asked from the pulpit again because it's a simple answer and yet it's profoundly deep because again there is an imbalance in the Christian life often that blurs justification and sanctification. It is right to say in one way Christ obeyed everything for me. Yes he did. And that's why you can be justified in the courtroom of heaven. But it is wrong to say, Christ obeyed for me, so now I can live my life however I want. And here is the mystery of the new covenant. This is what Jeremiah spoke of. All those who are in the new covenant won't want to do that. They won't want to live their life according to their law. They will desire and will say with the psalmist, I love your law. The law of God is, in a sense, the image of God. The law of God corresponds to his character, to his image. And brothers and sisters, when we from a right heart, a regenerated heart, do what God commands in the way that God commands them to be done. That is by our confession and by the scriptures called a good work. And as we continue in this process, we are being restored into the image of God. How does God transform his children now? How does he do that? By his word, through his spirit, in the operation of the spirit, pressing upon our wills to desire to do his law, making us more and more like Christ. Everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who hopes in Christ, truly hopes in him, hopes in that appearing, purifies himself. Why? Because you love God and you want to do what he commands. 
You want to glorify him. You desire it. Even when you fail and break the law, you get back up and you say, I don't want to do that again. You repent of your sins and you put your faith and trust in Christ who provides you the ability to walk. To walk. Coming to a close, there is a brother who wrote one of the classic tomes on the law and gospel. And he says this, In their adoption, this is us brothers and sisters, in their adoption as children into the family of God, a love for his character, that's God's character, a love for his character and for the holiness which distinguishes it has been implanted in their hearts. Listen here. They are made to desire perfect holiness of character, which is the image of God and obedience to his law. And though they work not for wages, and their hope rests not upon any obedience of their own, again, making a clear distinction between sanctification and justification, the spirit which is given to them leads them to press forward in every path of obedience, desiring to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. We said before, Dr. Sproul said he likes the definition of the perseverance of the saints, but he likes even better the term the preservation of the saints because it's the work of the spirit in you that makes all these things a reality in the first place. It's not that you persevere, but that the Lord is preserving you by his spirit, by conforming you into the image of Christ by his law. The law is an enemy for justification, but it is a sweet friend for sanctification. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So much more that can be said. But brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is that God has a present love for his people. It's clear it's on display now. He has a future love that he will demonstrate and put on display for his people. And it culminates in this future transformation at his coming when we will be glorified and shine like him. And yet there's a present transformation that is going on now by the work of his spirit in all of our lives. Amen. We began with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar ascribing himself the glory that belongs only to God. And we saw that transformation that took place in his life where he was created to look like a beast. And now, brothers and sisters, in the new covenant, we know more than they did. And we can see more than they did as we go back to the Old Testament and see things that were written for our instruction. And now with everything we've said in this sermon, listen to what Daniel says. Listen to what was given to Daniel by the angel. 
about the time that was to come. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake the resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness, and your goodness. You have shown us wondrous things out of your law this morning. Father, you have kindled a, 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 a love and a joy and an excitement, I trust, in all of our hearts, all of your children, the hearts of all your children, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would even kindle faith in the hearts that are here gathered with us in this place that are not yet adopted as your children. Oh, Father, we thank you that your love has not been withheld but is on display now. We marvel and rejoice in anticipation for the love that will be on display in the future. We can't even begin to fathom or plumb the depths of the transformation that will take place, Lord, at the coming of your Son. And yet, Lord, by your Spirit, you are transforming us even now, restoring the broken image of God in us and conforming us into the image of your beloved Son. O oh, Father, our Father, we pray and give you thanks in Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen.